Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello. Hello and welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Fambleau. And hey. hi, I forgot my line there for a second. This is I could tell a little bit. I was like, did I miss something? <laughs> no, this is the first time that I don't have it in front of me. I just went from memory on that one. So you could say I'm off book. Well, not to- not completely. It was the first run through. Like, like dress rehearsal. Ooh, no. You know, I like think... I'm almost there. Okay, but I feel like you should be at a better at a further along part than that than dress rehearsal maybe Mm. we weren't in the past like i'm like at a rehearsal right before the dress rehearsal you know because i feel like i feel like the last rehearsal before a dress rehearsal like nobody knows anything and then that's kind of when they're like oh shit we really need to like kick it it into gear and then they memorize everything and then the dress rehearsal somehow is just like magic you just pull it together right so like we're right before hell week and then right. yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody's like, oh my gosh, we're so unprepared. This is a mess. Right. Our lives are a mistake. To... Let's get it together. Right. <laughs> and then they absolutely. do. They absolutely always do. And you know what? I do feel like my life is falling apart. So, But now we know it's all going to come together. Theater metaphor. I, oh, I really hope. I really hope. It you know. How are you feeling? How are you doing? Um, I'm good. I've had like a whirlwind <laughs> weekend. Um, that's left mm-hmm. me with some like residual anxiety. My, I fell for a phishing scam, folks. Uh, happens to the best of us. I'm very embarrassed about it. But you can throw me in the category with like the 80 year old women that they tell not to like answer their phones and give out their personal information. Um, I am that 80 year old right. woman. I am the target demographic for phishing schemes, apparently, <laughs> because I fell for it. I was caught. Uh, I was post-nap, and I'm not the same person, so I'm a little frazzled still. But you know what? I mean, we're going to get through it. It's fine. Like, your identity may have been potentially stolen, Uh, but we will... It did get stolen. (laughs) It did. Maybe. We will endure. We don't know if if my identity... If I'm the victim of identity theft just yet, but definitely my identity, my identifying information exists now in the world. Um, you know what, Rachel? Identity theft is not a joke. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not. Um, thank you for bringing that up. You're right. And You're what right. a what a wonderful scene. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that was also funny because we talked about naps in a recent episode. And, yeah, a few weeks ago. And so it really was one of those naps that I woke up from and just was not the same. And therefore, <laughs> and therefore I was vulnerable <laughs> and they knew it. I'm telling you, nothing good happens like 20 minutes after a nap. No, you you are absolutely right. I think I refuted that when you said it, but mm-hmm. I've now seen the consequences. Yeah, you're not, you're not 100% there within the first 20 minutes of a nap right and that's gonna be my excuse it's like those what it's like one of the candy bar commercials. i think it's like a snickers commercial it's like it's you're not you when you're hungry or whatever it's like i'm not me when i'm napping i haven't had my my candy that's what it is i think it's like um (laughs) it's like a person's being a real asshole and then they like eat a candy (laughs) bar and they're normal um okay so it's like, i get that sometimes when you're like blood your blood sugar is low and then you just like eat candy and then you feel like instantly better i get it but then like 20 minutes later you definitely are also miserable again i think it's like it's like the hangry thing but i understand the mm. hangry thing i probably wouldn't like yeah, eat yeah, a yeah. snickers as my hangry solution but no Ooh. what's your favorite candy Ooh. um okay but wait are we talking chocolate or candy it's all the same to me mm, weird that you said that but okay in that case um i would say like chocolate covered peanuts um or chocolate covered pretzels so like a goober or like the flips <laughs> oh, God. the flips i really like those i don't know what that is the flips you don't know what what they are no both no. of them what are those a goober or a flip? Goobers are like... It feels like you're pranking me right now. <laughs> okay, so like goobers are like a movie theater 
version, like a movie theater candy. I'm pretty sure that's where I've eaten them, but they're just chocolate covered peanuts. That's just like the name of okay. like the box or goobers. I think it's with a Z. <laughs> um, and then okay, flips, that makes it worse somehow. flips also, I think with a Z are just like chocolate covered okay. pretzels. They had them a lot when I was okay. in college. I would just like buy them from the convenience store or whatever. They're just, so it's just like chocolate covered pretzels or chocolate covered peanuts. What is your favorite okay. candy? You like old person candy. Sorry to all those. I do like old person candy. Um, I think one of my favorites is gingers, like chewy, oh chewy ginger. That's <laughs> like not a candy. Really like, yeah, it is. It's sugary. Is it? Is it just like, like explain it more a little? Is it like a gummy or is it just like pieces of ginger that have been like dried and crystallized or something? No, no. no. Don't think about like, um. don't think about ginger at, like the supermarket that you get in those like weird plastic tubs that are like covered in sugar. It's like yes. literally, it's like a soft chew, like, you know, uh, mm. caramel or caramel chews. It's like that, but just like ginger. Mm, okay. It, they're really good. But then I also really like marzipan. Marzipan, like the cheese? Yeah. No. A cheese? No. Marzipan? That's marzipan. Oh, okay. So what's your thing? <laughs> marzipan is like, it's like i don't know like an almond paste maybe it's like the same thing as that basically it's like a white oh you know like they make marzipan like little fruits no i don't sorry i thought i knew for a second you said almond paste which is what they put in those cookies we were talking about earlier (laughs) last week yes so i thought you were talking about that but i don't know white i don't know two weeks ago okay but that sounds okay i would try the almondy one but i also really love like I know we said favorites, but I also really love sugar in general. So I really love like malt balls, which are another old person candy. Yeah. Um, Reese's, uh, okay, Kit Kats, Reese's are a good one. Yeah. Heath bars, um, the mounds, almond joys, all of them. Oh, another God, I thing I noticed you really liked, and I liked too, but it was very funny. Just the sheer amount that were in your house um, when what? I came to visit <laughs> the um, chocolate covered cherries, like the chocolate covered. Oh my god! How did I forget those? Yeah, like the cordial, cordial cherries. cherries. Yeah, own me. Like the grip that chocolate covered cherries have on my life is insane. Yeah, I it think you like, went through probably thirty, like eight thirty of them in the three days that I was visiting you. Like you ate a lot of chocolate covered cherries, and no shame, they're really good. And I ate more before you came. Yeah, there was like a solid container. Yeah, it's because they don't sell them at like normal, like Target or whatever, the, like normal stores, unless it's like a holiday, like Valentine's Day. So when it was Valentine's Day, and then they had a sale on them, so I just stocked up and got as many as I could. Yeah, I feel like it's a big like Christmas time, like holiday time Mm -hmm. candy. I don't really know why, but I had them for the first time around the holidays last year. It's like 2020. And I was like, where have these been all my life? They're very delicious. Because it's just a sugary like maraschino cherry covered in chocolate. It's perfect. Anyway, let's should. Let's, I feel like we should just jump into it. Let's just get into this. Today we're talking about two people who were murdered. Yeah, big, big content warning. This is yes. going to be a sensitive topic that we're talking about today. We both kind of, this is like the first time that we really plan to do two subjects that kind of really overlap in this in this way, just because, you know, if you don't like true crime or you don't like topics such as this, it might just be better to skip this one come back to us next week check in with us then yeah we wanted to cover these things just all together so that way you could just um hopefully you stick around but if you want to skip this week that's totally okay my story is going to cover things um like sexual assaults and um i talk about um the murder of this week's subject so this week was one that I actually myself just learned about fairly recently and coincides with the actual job that I have. And so I really wanted to talk about it on this podcast. And some of you may have also heard of this story. I imagine I imagine many of you have. So I'm kind of interested to talk about it from this angle today. I'm going to be talking about the murder of Kitty Genovese. Have you, does that ring any bells for you, Jared? It does, only because, I mean, I knew that you were doing this topic this week. I didn't look into it, but I believe I, I believe there's a Netflix documentary about it, or it was on Netflix um, a few years ago, and 
I, if I'm thinking of the right person, the right subject, I, I watched that documentary, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't tell you a lot about it. Couldn't recall anything. Okay. That's very fascinating to me. I watch a lot of true crime stuff. Okay. So, you know, in one ear, out another, just kind sure. of that, white noise. That makes sense. And I know that about you. It is interesting mm-hmm. to me though, because part of the reason I think this story really captured so much and like was separated a little bit from other true crime stories was that it became like kind of a national obsession but for all the wrong reasons like this Mm -hmm. ended up for a lot of people kind of carrying a huge lore with it and so we're kind of going to talk yeah talk a little bit about it debunk some things this week and then like fill in some more vital information that may have been missing from your memory of this story so all right let's do it yeah strap in sources i used for today were mainly the you're wrong about podcast episode um entitled kitty genovese and bystander apathy it's a really great episode covers a little bit more than i was able to today and it's just generally a podcast inspo here at her i used an article for glad.org by alexandra bowles a call for help what the kitty genovese story really means by nicholas lehman for the new yorker Marsha Gallo's presentation entitled Crimes That Changed the LGBT World, Claiming Kitty Genovese as a Queer Icon, a Making Queer History article by Callie Summerlin, and then the New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project. So the murder of Kitty Genovese has for over 55 years been a representation of the extreme negatives, you know, associated with human behavior, murder, assault, and quote-unquote good people standing by and doing nothing. This is where we first learned about things like the bystander effect and just like human apathy. So I first learned about the Kitty Genovese case, I guess, in college, both in my psychology classes, like from professors and in textbooks and within the anti-violence work I was doing and still am doing. Like it's still a very popular narrative that people talk about. The story... Like the kind of continuing story goes, one night a young woman, Kitty, was stabbed and sexually assaulted in the courtyard of her apartment building. The incident lasted over 30 minutes and all this time, 38 people saw the attack and heard her screams, but not one person called the police or otherwise intervened. So this murder has become almost like an urban legend detailing the terrible loneliness of city life and the apathy of city dwellers and what became known as the bystander effect, which is the willingness of people to stand by and watch these horrific things happen only to do absolutely nothing. So that's kind of like the story that I heard. That's the story that most people I know have heard. And that's the story that I was told like in academic settings. Mm -hmm. Does that sound familiar at all to you? Well, now I'm second guessing if I know the right story because the story that I know, I mean, was similar with the bystander effect, but didn't take place in the courtyard. And, and it was more about a, a woman on the street, maybe, and you know, neighbors okay. like peering out, whatever you tell me. So maybe this Netflix documentary was able to do a better job explaining. I think a lot of this debunking okay. happened beginning in the early 2000s up until now, like it's still being... The, the true narrative is still kind of being worked out and explained to people. Mm-hmm. Like it exists out there. We know what really happened um, because spoiler, that's not exactly what happened. But because okay. this was such a pervasive narrative, it it does have to get worked out of now those like academic settings and being used gotcha. in this way. So there, like I was saying, there are some key details missing from this original story. Some of the facts of that original story were just created out of thin air they just were never true others were like mischaracterizations of original details like things that happened but they were like made really exaggerated and other important Mm -hmm. information was just fully left out altogether so either things were completely fabricated things were just not included or things were exaggerated it's it's like a lot and we kind of i'll briefly touch on why but some of my sources do a better job explaining where this kind of narrative came from and why But we'll kind of go back, we'll start from the beginning and try to capture more of a real story of what happened. So Catherine Susan Genovese, also known as Kitty, was born in Brooklyn, New York on July 7th, 1935. She was the oldest of five children in a Catholic Italian-American family in New York City. 
After high school in 1953, there was growing concern about the increase in violent crimes in the city. So Kitty's family moved to Connecticut, but Kitty decided to stay in the city. So here she is. She's an 18-year-old. She's straight out of high school and just kind of 18? alone in New York. Yeah, she's 18. She literally oh just graduated God. high school. And she's her family moves, I think it's New Canaan, Connecticut. And Mm -hmm. so she's the oldest. There's like no one else kind of around. And she's just like, you know what? I want to stay here. It's fine. Whatever. All good. So the city is a bold place to be alone as a young woman. That's like a bold choice to decide to stay on your own. Yeah, I agree. As a young woman, I probably wouldn't make that choice. But she also grew up there like her whole life. Like she was born and raised in the city. And so she was kind of just like, why would I leave? Because at this time was like the start of like white flight and like New Yorkers and just like America as a whole were like, whoa, serial killers are a thing. That's really fucking scary. And so in order to like ease those fears, a lot of people were just like moving out of cities and were just like afraid of the like urban life. But Kitty was like, I'm not seeing those things. I don't, I'm just going to stay here, like whatever. So while she was in New York, she's 18. She worked as a secretary for an insurance agency and eventually became a bartender and then a bar manager at Eve's 11th Hour Bar in Queens. So that's kind of where she worked and lived for like a full decade, just about. So she's in her 20s. She's like tending bar. She's a bar manager. She's just kind of living her life. By all accounts, she was like this fun and compassionate young woman. She was remembered fondly by her coworkers and patrons at the bar. Um, one of the best known pictures of her, like when there's articles about Kitty Genovese, it's actually a mugshot of her, which is interesting, right? Because a mugshot. Yeah, so, so it'll be like an article about her murder, but the picture of her is a mugshot, which is very interesting. What a choice. I know. I guess there just like wasn't that many pictures of her, but pictures the mugshot is because I I mean I guess it's not really that funny but so at the bar where she worked she like took money from a patron to bet on like a horse race and it ended up being an undercover cop and there's like also things involving like her last name and like the mafia and the fact that she was Italian and so she gets arrested for like this horse betting scandal thing okay Uh so that's what the mugshot is of but she's just kind of like she's a fun loving gal she's just living it up and okay One of the lesser reported details about Kitty is that she was a lesbian. Mm. And this is not something that was like public information that was shared when she had died. So one night in March 1963, Kitty met Mary Ann Zalanko at a quote girl bar called the Swing Rendezvous. Kitty was 27 at this time. After just like chatting a little bit that evening, Kitty left a note at Marianne's apartment building that read, quote, I'll call you at seven, the phone across the street, unquote. So she was like smooth. I was going to say that's a, that's cute, but also a little creepy. Okay, it is. So listen, <laughs> it is a little creepy. Red flags were raised for me because everything I was reading was yeah. like, it's romantic. She found where she lived and left her a note. So I was like, ooh, ooh. But I guess I, for the time. Yeah, I think the f- <laughs> it's hard so it's like very context <laughs> dependent because it seemed like this okay. was fine like they didn't have cell phones you couldn't just like text someone after the fact really i don't know if they like right. had even phones. it didn't seem like they even had phones in their houses or apartments like they were only lines. using right they were only really using pay phones so i think this was more appropriate for the time and was well received okay. so i don't think it was as much of like a okay. stalking situation then cute yes so it's cute, cute. cute so cute, cute. They had their first date. So Marianne goes to the payphone. She, they call. They mm-hmm. chat more, whatever. They have their first date at Seven Steps. It's like a club disco situation, I think. And in bringing it back, classic U-Haul lesbian fashion, they have this date and then are like, let's move in together fully one date. Oh, my God. <laughs> Girls, women, <laughs> ladies. <laughs> So one date, Kitty's 27, they go on this date, Marianne says, quote, sometimes you meet a person and you just know. So I guess they just knew. They were like, let's do it. Um, Honestly (laughs) iconic. Good for them. Truly. Um, It's very sweet. And so they were just like, yeah, let's let's do this thing. They moved into Kew Gardens in Queens, which was at the time known as like a relatively safe neighborhood that for like city standards was fairly residential it was like 
So the apartment building was a, just a two-story building. The bottom was like shops, almost like sort of like a strip mall. And then there are apartments at the top, just like one floor. So we're not talking like mm-hmm. city high rises. It, this isn't like hustle and bustle. It's just kind of like a fairly residential-ish right. area of Queens. Okay. So nothing too wild. Like I don't want you to be picturing like Manhattan skyline right. here. So though Kitty and Marianne lived together, aside from their close friends, they were known as just like close friends to others or simply roommates, which is mm-hmm. important later. So everyone just knew them okay. as roommates. And they were roommates. And they were roommates, right. The two lived together for almost a year. So like this kind of impulse quick choice paid off they they were working it out they were doing really well so they lived together for just about a year in Kew Gardens on Friday March 13th Friday the 13th just throwing that Mm. out there on Friday March 13th 1964 Kitty was 28 and she was on her way home from her bar shift and then having drinks with a friend it was just after 3 a.m when Kitty parked her car at the train station and began walking home her attacker 29-year-old Winston Mosley had been following her looking for a victim. He got out of his car and stalked her on foot before stabbing her on the dimly lit street near her building. So we're going to kind of pause here because there are two attacks this night and like throughout this incident. So we're taking a pause because this is where the reports that come later already start to kind of fabricate what happened. So this is first... Like I said, this is first where it's reported that people saw what happened and did nothing. But I wanted to kind of Mm -hmm. clarify a little bit more here first. So the first thing is that there were no streetlights or at least not streetlights how we think of them now. So it would be really hard to see if you could really see at all. Also, Mm -hmm. it's 3 a.m. So very few people are awake, likely. And if they are awake or were woken up they probably aren't super lucid and may have just been like what was that sound i'll go back to sleep or even if they peered out the window again it's dimly lit they might not have been able to see anything and then the third thing kitty's lung was punctured in this first attack so oh god people it's like pretty gruesome but people do say like oh well if all these people after this fact heard her screaming for 30 minutes all this time it's actually very unlikely that she was screaming after this point because from this moment she was beginning to suffocate so she couldn't yell and then finally and most importantly someone at this point did yell out the window and said leave that girl alone which caused winston mosley to flee the scene for about 10 minutes so one, there was an intervention. And two, there all the factors that made it seem like other people were just like watching and doing nothing probably weren't the case. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we're at now. And I feel like that intervention, that one person saying, leave her alone, I feel like for a city, that's pretty good. I mean, it's not a small residential suburb where everybody knows each other right and like you may argue that people in a building know each other but like i live in an apartment building and like i know like two of my neighbors right Right. and i talk to two people it's not like i'm friends and know everybody by name in this building so like the fact that one person even yelled down to like you know basically who could be a stranger just passing that's really impressive yeah it was literally just like i hear a commotion down there i'm going to yell right Like, it could be anyone. It was also that where this happened was outside of a bar. So I guess Mm -hmm. there's often a lot of, like, domestic violence incidents. And so that either meant, one, this person may have thought that's what was happening and was yelling down to be, like, knock it off. Or, two, some reports say that because that happened or because there was a bar there, people were fairly indifferent to incidences of domestic Mm -hmm. violence and were just kind of like, oh, that's just a husband hitting his wife, so we'll leave it alone. Whereas if it was a random man attacking a random woman, I guess that would be a time to intervene. I'm being sarcastic, please intervene anytime. But like, that's that's some like, in case it was unclear. Those are some different speculations. But the important part is one person did intervene. On the other side of this, 
there was someone, definitely one person, who did nothing, absolutely nothing. So his name was Joseph Fink. He was working at the building across the street. He fully saw the attack. Like, he was working, he was awake, saw the attack, like, saw the knife. He he admits oh to this God. fully, saw that this man had a knife. He reports that he considered going to get his baseball bat, but went downstairs and took a nap instead. So... In all of this story, he will definitely fall on the bad guy end of our spectrum. Like this mm-hmm. story, I think one of the important takeaways is that there are very few just like good people and bad people. Like it's it's all kind of a yeah. spectrum of what happened. Like Winston Mosley and definitely bad guy. Number one, bad guy. We don't like him. Yeah. Um, terrible, yeah, terrible, objectively terrible. And then also yeah. like Joseph Fink, pretty black and white. We can say not okay what he did. Right. So- that's where we are. There was this first attack and there was like a sort of intervention and a sort of not intervention. After this, Winston Mosley has fled. For He's gone for about 10 minutes. He moves his car. So at that time, Kitty staggered back towards her building, attempting to kind of find unlocked doors. So she's kind of opening doors, seeing what's open. Eventually, she was able to make it back into the vestibule of the building her friend Carl Ross lived in. So it was like all her building, but there were different access points. So this one led to the doorway of one of her friends. At this time, she's in here. She's kind of just like laying, like trying to like get help. Mosley returned, found her here um, in front of Carl Ross's door, actually. It was here he sexually assaulted her before stabbing her again and then fleeing. So during the second and final attack, Ross heard the commotion, like literally right outside his door. He opened it. He saw Kitty being attacked and then closed the door. And it's kind of here, this exchange. And then later on the report from Carl that we get the infamous line that's attributed to this case and is used to kind of summarize it. He says, quote, I didn't want to get involved, unquote. Like, what the fuck? Okay. And that's that's a fine reaction. That's a normal reaction. I think that's the reaction that people associate with it. But I'm going to, like, just zoom out a smidge and let's, like, try to think about this in a little bit of a different way. So at the time, Carl Ross was drunk and a more accurate understanding of this quote may be like i didn't know what to do to get involved carl ross was a gay man he was a friend of kitty's and he was likely like we can imagine ourselves in this situation he was likely very scared and shocked and also wary to call the police himself so Mm -hmm. instead he goes he closes the door he goes back into his apartment he called a friend who was and he was like what what the hell do i do the friend also advises him not to call the police so carl was like okay i'm right i'm not gonna call the police but like my friend is being murdered on my doorstep. What am I going to do? So he sneaks out of his apartment through his window. He like crawls across the roof and into a neighbor's apartment where he asks her to call the police like for him. He like lets her know what's happening. He's like, you have to call the police. Also calling the police didn't mean just dialing 911. So we're in 1964. Um, a universal 911 system like wasn't a thing. You didn't just like call 911 for emergency services. So what did, you, what did you have to do to get to the police? So you would either call, like if you had it memorized or written down, you would call your specific precinct number directly. So like oh Brooklyn nine nine, you'd like call up the number for Brooklyn that's nine nine. That's asking a lot of people. Right. That's... Or you'd have to call an operator and then the operator would like connect you to the precinct line. Right. So either way, it was like a fairly extensive process. And this was if you had landlines also. If not, you had to like leave your building to go find a phone and call someone. So also worth considering, right? It's not an excuse, but it's worth acknowledging. It's not just seems like picking up your cell phone and calling 911. All of this, plus this was happening around the same time as our Compton's Cafeteria riot story. So like, That was happening, and headlines across New York City included things like, quote, growth of overt homosexuality in the city provokes wide concern. So, like, this was the narrative at the time, so it's a realistic possibility that Carl Ross was just not inclined to immediately seek assistance from law enforcement. Totally understand that. Right. Absolutely get that. So, 
Either way, we know that at least two calls were made to the police eventually. At the same okay. time, Sophia Farrer, a young mother and wife, also living in the building, she heard the altercation. And this is where like our heroism really comes out. She selflessly just ran out to Katie. So like imagine this moment. She's like young. She's probably about our age. She's a mother. She has no idea what's going on. She has no idea if the attacker is still there. She doesn't know what the situation is. Like she doesn't know if her own life is in danger, but she immediately like leaves her building or her um, apartment to run to Kitty and start screaming for help. At this time, Mosley had left, but she didn't know that at the time. So she was just like- Right. She could have been running into an attack herself. herself. Right. So she had no idea. Sophia kind of was screaming for help. She held Kitty, who was at this time dying in the doorway until emergency services had arrived. Kitty died from the punctured lung of the initial attack in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. So that's kind of the facts about what happened at the time. So some interventions happened, some didn't. But that's kind of the facts of what happened that night. Marianne, Kitty's girlfriend, was woken up by police around 4 a.m. the morning of her and Kitty's one-year anniversary to the news that her girlfriend had been murdered in their building and that she was a suspect. Oh, my God. Yeah, so... She's a suspect. She is a suspect. The story kind of keeps getting worse. So, yeah, this was... Like I said, they had met in March. This happened on March 13th. Mm-hmm. So this was this was their one-year anniversary. So at this point, like, Marianne, again, we're going to talk about the roommate thing. So she's known only as Kitty's roommate. Roommates don't get to hear what has happened first. Like, they're not brought into the loop. They don't get to see the body. They don't get to visit someone in the hospital. They don't get mentioned in an obituary. Like... They're not part of the story the way a partner would be, but like Marianne and Kitty were not partners to the world. So like she doesn't get mentioned in the story. She doesn't get included in all of this. Mm -hmm. Instead, the police question Marianne about the nature of her relationship for hours. Eventually, Marianne kind of caved and she says she regrets this even now um, and revealed that they were in a relationship, which ended up making her suspect number one. The police then continued interrogating her about their sex positions, like their sex lives, and if Kitty was having an affair with the men that she was working with, because they were just like, we know that lesbians are jealous and she must have been having an affair with this man and you are like doing, you're like living this life that we don't agree with, so you must also be a murderer because those are the same things. What the fuck? Yeah. So- Marianne also found out at this time from police that Kitty died on the doorstep of their friend Carl's apartment, who soon after disappeared from New York, like never kind of to be oh, seen fuck. again. Just... I'm imagining he feels he felt very guilty. I mean, he never really right. spoke about this afterwards, but that's what I am taking away from sure. it. Yeah. And then many of Marianne's friends refused to talk to her after this for fear that mm. the police would move to interrogating or following them. Oh, God. A Queerty article notes, quote, the public attitude toward lesbians in the mid-60s wasn't exactly friendly, so it's tempting to wonder if that played a role in the neighbor's refusal to call police. Maybe they were suspicious of the two women sharing an apartment together and didn't want to get involved in what might have looked like a romantic spat. It wasn't a romantic spat, of course. Genevieve was randomly targeted by Winston Mosley, who simply liked to kill. After his capture, he confessed to two other murders, unquote. So much of this suggests that though Kitty was not murdered for being a lesbian, it definitely did factor into why people were hesitant to get involved, stay involved after the fact and like be supportive with Marianne and why this was never part of the story that we were told. Because this never factored into anything I had known about this case beforehand. Right. So about a week later, this case was headline news and it stayed relevant for nearly 60 years. Why Mm. this case That's the question people constantly ask. There were 636 murders that took place in New York City that year, one of which, at least one of which, was committed by the same person, like had the same murderer. Right. Um, But why did this one kind of stick? Why did it become an American Mm -hmm. obsession almost overnight? Part of the explanation is that the story captured the attention of A.M. Rosenthal, a writer for the New York Times, who was waiting for a story he could use to continue fueling tensions about civil rights, white flight, and fears of city dwellers and suburbia alike. 
The story was going to drive home the idea that cities and the people who live in them are monstrous and just not worth saving. That was kind of the the dominant idea of the time of like cities are kind of going to shit and should we be investing in them or just like move on. He was kind of looking for something to support this idea that something about city life fundamentally changes human behavior. It's isolating, it's scary, and we should just kind of do away with it altogether. But in order to create that story in a way that was really compelling to any audience, he had to make Kitty the quote unquote perfect victim. And that meant like that he could capture this kind of moral sickness that he thought plagued living in the city. Hmm. So in order to do this, he emphasized her young white womanhood and ignored the fact that she was a lesbian. Like he knew this and was just like, oh, we're not going to put that in there because people aren't going to like that. So we're just not going to put that in there. And by all accounts, he was homophobic himself. So probably he didn't Mm. want to include that also. Yeah, we love that. Right. Right. So from here on out, it was never part of the Kitty Genovese story until 2004 when Marianne decided to speak publicly about Kitty and their relationship. So on March 27th, 1964, the first story from the New York Times by A.M. Rosenthal broke and immediately became this sensation. It was entitled... 37 who saw murder and didn't call the police. So the Mm. title alone we now know is just like completely untrue along with many of the details in this initial report and further reports. He went on to like write kind of like a quickie book and all this stuff. Mm. It's sensationalism. Yeah. By the 1970s though, and partly because of the Kitty Genovese murder, the emergency 911 system was created along with the implementation of sodium streetlights in the city, which in a really disgusting way, but I guess I have to like sort of respect the the attitude here. Um, Winston Mosley, the murderer, attempted to take credit for these things happening in a parole hearing. Mm-mm. He was Mm-mm. like, I can't help but laugh. He was like, yeah, what happened was tragic. He just said what happened, which is also funny because like you did it. He was like, what happened was tragic, but at least it like supported these new initiatives. And it's like, okay, bold of you. Sorry, you don't get to claim, you know, modern inventions and like implementations in cities because you were the person that murdered someone. You don't get to take credit for that. Right, because you murdered three people. (laughs) Now, like we had to revamp our emergency services, which would likely have happened anyway and definitely needed to happen. But like you didn't need to murder three people to prove it. Thanks. Right. So... In 2004, on the 50th anniversary of her death, Marianne talked about her relationship with Kitty publicly on NPR and with the Times. Marcia Gallo says that by Marianne speaking publicly, quote, it is important to underscore that Kitty Genovese was not outed as a renegade lesbian who ran afoul of social norms in 1964. She was claimed 40 years later as one half of a committed same-sex couple, unquote. So, Kitty was never trying to be like a public lesbian icon. She was not known that much as like a huge activist, but she does deserve to have her story be completed with the fact that she was a lesbian. And it may also be a piece of this like bystander apathy narrative. Eventually, Mosley was arrested after being caught stealing a TV from his neighbors in Queens and confessed to the murder of Kitty as well as two other women. He was found guilty of murdering Kitty and suspected of killing Annie Mae Johnson and Barbara Kralik, both of whom also never made it into this narrative, and they were killed before Kitty. Oh my god. Likely because at least Annie Mae Johnson was a black woman, and so again, probably didn't fit this kind of narrative that they were trying to paint of this perfect victim. Mosley was the longest serving inmate in the New York prison system before his death from natural causes in 2016. So that's kind of like the more true story. So something to emphasize is that ultimately the bystander effect is real, but not like this. It's real in that, in the idea that the more people around who witness something, the less likely one person is to intervene. We learned that in health class. I don't know if you were in my, in this health class of mine, but like when we did first aid and if you see someone and you're going to give them CPR or have like the person has otherwise collapsed, you need to like single someone out to call 911. Like you in the blue shirt, call 911. Otherwise, if you just say it to a crowd, it's unlikely one person will do it. That's, that's like a true phenomenon. That's true. And there are also social barriers like race or sexuality that will play a part in how and when you intervene. Again, all of that Mm -hmm. is true. 
The Kitty Genevieve story is a heartbreaking murder, but it never should have been made into a story about martyrdom and apathetic human behavior. Like, she doesn't deserve that. It was a story about lots of people making small choices that were less helpful than we like to imagine we would all be. Like, we all like to think we'd be the heroes of this story. And I think this reflected not necessarily, like, big city apathy, but it reflected that we all probably wouldn't be heroes in this situation. Like I said, all of this is true and bystander intervention is something I'm so passionate about. And like I said, most of my job is about it. So we do need to learn how to intervene safely. And Mm -hmm. that's an important takeaway, but I don't like this story. There are people who could and should have done more, but I don't really want the story and Kitty as a whole to be our model for intervention anymore. Like, I don't want to hear this story in textbooks. I just want her to kind of be able to rest peacefully knowing that she was in the arms of Sophia Farr and she celebrated her anniversary with Marianne. Like, that's where Kitty's story unfortunately ended and we should have just let it rest there. Mm-hmm. And so that's the truer version of the Kitty Genevieve story. It's such a tragic story. It's so upsetting to hear that, like, she was just on her way home. Right. She was going home to her girlfriend on the day of their anniversary. Like, it's it's so sad and it's heartbreaking. Um, I think Sophia, if I, I watched the documentary a while ago, but I think Sophia was in it. I think she, she deserves was to be in it and telling the story about how she held mm-hmm. Kitty in her arms. Like, it's just so sad and just... Okay, I live in Los Angeles. It's shit happens here every single day. And absolutely something will happen and everybody just kind of walks by like, that's not my business. Right. Like, I don't I don't want to deal with that. I'm not getting involved with that. And so it's like, it just becomes like a social norm to just be like, uh, someone will get that. Someone's going to do that, but not me. I don't have to worry about right. it. But it's like, when you really think about it, if every single person is doing that, like maybe you should be the one to step up and, and do something. Cause most likely everybody else around you is thinking the exact same thing of, I don't need to do that. It's not my, not my problem. Yeah, exactly. Like those are real feelings that people have, but I think the important thing to separate is it's, it's it's just a human behavior to like kind of avoid conflict or like be scared or fearful or just kind of like want to ignore things and not get involved. Cause like, it's true. We are all busy. We all have things to do. And some of those situations genuinely could put us in harm's way. But I think what's, interesting to me all this time later and kind of knowing about bystander dynamics or more about bystander dynamics it's not so much city life that would affect those things because if human beings are going to behave that way they're going to behave that way no matter what their setting is and so i always think about that also they talk about this in the you're wrong about episode of like yeah but do you know how often people call the cops for shittier things you know like you know seeing Mm -hmm. those videos of just like people calling the cops on their neighbors for no fucking reason besides like it's 1001 your music is still too loud and it's like a summer barbecue turn it down you know so right i think fucking stupid stuff yeah they talk about that in the podcast i think they say like this idea of urban apathy is cured by urban snitching which is totally true right like you will anonymously rat on the people around you anytime absolutely well, thank you. You're welcome. I'm it was it to... was condensed. The training I do at work is three hours, so you just got a small taste. <laughs> and I am so very grateful for that. I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go into kind of another, another sad story. Okay. Um, it's interesting as you were telling your story there were a lot of similarities between Kitty Genovese and my subject today. Um, Interesting. Which we planned this episode, the subjects to be similar because of their tragic endings. But there's a lot that they actually have in common, like family and background wise. I'm going to be telling you about MGM's Latin lover and Hollywood's first gay icon, Ramon Navarro. Ooh, love a Latin lover. Me too. The sources I use for today's episode include a Today in Gay History article about Ramon Navarro by Andrew Belonsky for Out.com, Forgotten Hollywood, Ramon Navarro, a bona fide silent movie idol by Noel de Souza, 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 sorry, 
for goldenglobes.com, the Ramon Navarro profile for the Legacy Project, the encyclopedia.com entry for Ramon Navarro, and his Wikipedia page. Okay. So, Jose Ramon Gil Samaniego. Oh, God, the white is really showing. Yeah, it's jumping out of us. Yeah, oh, God. (laughs) So, Jose Ramon Gil Samaniego is born in Durango, Mexico, before the turn of the century in 1899. He's the firstborn and then becomes the eldest of 13 children. So, like Kitty, he is firstborn. Jose's family is incredibly wealthy, influential, and well-respected throughout Mexico. His grandfather is a well-known physician. His father is a very successful dentist with a degree from University of Pennsylvania, who would then marry Jose's mother, who is the beautiful daughter of a prosperous landowner. Legend has it that his mother and her family descended directly from Aztec royalty. He's even second cousins with Mexican actresses Dolores Del Rio and Andrea Palmer. (gasps) Dolores Del Rio? Dolores Del Rio. Oh my god! making another appearance i'm telling you all of our latin lovers Mm -hmm. all these episodes are connected in one way or another amazing so the family lives in durango in in a state called the garden of eden until the start of the mexican revolution when they then move to mexico city and then they return to durango when they think it's safe but then in 1913 when the turmoil of the mexican revolution becomes too great the Samaniego family flees Mexico as part of a wave of mass emigration, and they resettle in Los Angeles. After a few years of being in the United States, three of Jose's sisters become Roman Catholic nuns, and he strongly considers becoming a priest himself, but he had an even stronger desire to become an entertainer. And I wrote down, WWJND, what would Jesus not do? <laughs> right (laughs) it's like good point i was gonna take it in the opposite direction and say um to me priests and entertainers fairly the same and also i was thinking about it after i just said that i feel like jesus kind of like had he was a kind of doing tricks and he was like putting on a show jesus had some pizzazz you know he had had a little (laughs) flair right so you know what now thinking about it jose and jesus not so different no not so different after all great And so his first thought is to be a musician, but when he finds himself in Los Angeles and needing money, Jose begins to work as an extra in the flourishing silent film industry. Mm. And it's not incredibly hard to get his foot in the door as Jose is incredibly handsome, but also because he can pass as Caucasian. Mm. So there's a little bit of... There's definitely some like colorism happening here. Exactly. And I will say, Jared sent me some images just before filming this was very hot so god gorgeous so that i definitely think if hollywood has the same standards that they do now which i imagine they did um was definitely working in his favor absolutely so around 1916 he begins playing bit parts which are very small roles in movies and he also becomes a singing waiter a taxi driver and a dancer in review shows just to make ends meet and when jose would be credited for these bit parts which he isn't credited for any of his roles for the first two years and like six movies or so but when he finally is credited for his bit parts in 1921 he was credited as ramon samaniego and kind of from here on out because he starts getting credited as ramon he then loses jose and just starts going by ramon professionally okay while Ramon is finding his way within the entertainment business, he's also finding his way into a relationship with composer Harry Parch, who was working as an usher at the LA Philharmonic at the time. And not much is known or written about this relationship, though we know that they were together for like the hottest of seconds. Okay. In 1922, five years later, Ramon finds himself in a supporting role as Rupert of Hentzau in Rex Ingram's adaptation of The Prisoner of Zenda. A lot of fun names wow. there. Yeah. And and the entertainment industry sure has changed because I would not want to watch that. Whatever that is, this is not entertainment, I can tell you that. <laughs> the Prisoner of Zenda, you don't want to watch a silent film. The the adaptation of The Prisoner of Zenda. <laughs> There's... Does not sound like a fun Friday night for me. <laughs> Just me personally. <laughs> the reason why I say adaptation is because there's like seven versions of this movie. I don't know what about this story has people like 
gripped, but like they keep remaking <laughs> the prisoner of Zenda. <laughs> and so Rex Ingram was like, I I really need to remake this film. And so okay. Ramon Navarro or Ramon at this point right. becomes a supporting role okay. as Well, good Ruber. for him. And Rex Ingram is impressed with Ramon's work. And so Ingram again casts Jose, who is now going by Ramon, in his next silent film, Trifling Women, where again Ramon shines. Rex Ingram and his wife, actress Alice Terry, begin to promote Ramon as a rival to Rudolf Valentino, an Italian actor nicknamed the Latin lover who was like the sex symbol of the 1920s. And so Rex Ingram advises Ramon to begin using Navarro as his last name for simplicity's sake, and he thinks it'll do better with audiences. So again, it's kind of like this watering down version of Ramon to be palatable Mm -hmm. for like dominant white audiences. Right. In 1923, after his name changed to Ramon Navarro, Rex Ingram casts him in the movie Scaramouche, where he plays the swashbuckling leading man, which garners him instant success. Interesting. And from here on, Ramon finds footing and his fame really takes off, and like long gone are the days of playing the bit part. It isn't until 1925, though, that he really achieves great success when he's cast as the titular role in the silent film Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ, for the studio Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. And there was actually a different leading man and a different director attached to the film, but when the director was fired and Fred Niblo replaced him, that's the the guy who went on to direct Ben-Hur, he insisted that Ramon whom he had worked with before, replaced the lead actor as well. So, like, the lead actor gets booted for Ramon, which I think kind of says something about his, like, on-screen presence and his talent and, like, people, they liked him. They really liked him. Yeah, people are willing to pull strings for him. Right. And the movie is about a Jewish man who is falsely accused and convicted of an attempted assassination of the Roman governor of Judea and consequently enslaved by the Romans and somehow becomes like a successful charioteer. I didn't really read into it that much. Fun stuff. But the film took two years and $3.9 million to make, which in today money is $64 million, making it the most expensive silent movie ever made. Yeah, what are you paying for? <laughs> Sets, animals, <laughs> okay. costumes, okay. chariots. Oh, right, right, right. It's a whole like Roman thing. And it's advertised that this picture is a picture every Christian ought to see. And it only makes upwards of $9 million, which is $148.5 million today. So... Although this film doesn't do as well in the box office as it had hoped to, audiences everywhere fall in love with Ramon, partly because of his talent, partly because of his like breathtaking androgynous beauty, and also because of his well-fitting and semi-revealing costumes. Like these costumes don't really leave, you know, a lot of room in the imagination for the audience. So women mm-hmm. and some men, I'm sure, were swooning over him when they see him in this movie. And after the studio, MGM, received a bunch of fan mail for Ramon from adoring fans, they raised his salary to $10,000 a week, which is $165,000 today, and they gave him a 10-year contract. So he would at least be making $10,000 a week for like 10 years, which is a pretty good deal. It's a pretty good gig. Yeah, a pretty good gig. Yeah, I would say so. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as soon as Ramon begins to gain his fame, he breaks things off with Harry Parch, the future composer. While the reason isn't stated explicitly, it's likely because of the public attention that Ramon was receiving and because the United States wasn't so gay-friendly at the time. I mean, the Lavender Scare was only two decades away. Ramon wanted to protect his newfound success and probably didn't believe that he could be both in a relationship with Harry and be this like romantic leading man in the lives of Americans at the same time. In 1926, at the age of 31, Rudolph Valentino, who is MGM's Latin lover, dies, which causes mass hysteria among his fans, but Ramon Navarro gracefully steps into his place and takes over the role, being nicknamed MGM's second Latin lover, and becomes the studio's leading Latin actor. Navarro stars in various silent films as the swashbuckling studded star, which, for those who don't know, think of like the Three Musketeers, like good with swords and acrobatics and this like adventurous action type. 
And because of these roles and his consistently growing fame, Navarro is able to avoid the stereotypical parts that plague other Latino actors at the time. And he's able to become this like celebrity crush, like the dreamy leading man, the, the one to be fawned over. And mm-hmm. he appears in silent drama films like The Student Prince of Old Heidelberg in 1927 and Across to Singapore in 1928, co-starring with Norma Shearer and Joan Crawford, respectively, some of MGM's most well-known leading ladies of the day. Like, he is really making it. He is in, like, the biggest pictures of the year, and he is the leading man. So he's doing incredibly right. well. right. In the late 1920s, Ramon begins a secret relationship with his publicist and Hollywood journalist Herbert Howe and the socialite bachelor Noelle Sullivan. And in classic, historically really good friends fashion, Noelle Sullivan's Wikipedia page states that the two men had a 30-year lifelong friendship and nothing else. (laughs) And it's like, come on. Oh, man. I want to know, people who write those things, what are you doing with your friends? What are your friendships like? Right, right. Because like, why do you think that? It's interesting because Ramon's Wikipedia page says that he had a romantic relationship so it's like what's not clicking like why are you trying to protect noelle sullivan what is going on right oh my gosh that's too funny in 1927 talkies which are movies with synchronized sound are invented but the synchronized sound is only used in a few lines here and there but by 1929 full feature length talkies have hit the scene and are a commercial success Ramon stars in his first talkie in 1929 called Devil May Care, playing a French singing soldier. And from that point on, like between the years of 1929 and 1934, Ramon hits his stride and is really at the height of his career. He stars in close to 15 talkies, most famously in Matahari in 1931 with Greta Garbo. And in this heyday, it's reported that Ramon is making about $100,000 per film. The Legacy Project reports that modern-day critics have praised Navarro's natural acting style as a refreshing departure from the often overblown emoting prevalent in silent cinema. He's a huge hit with crew and audiences alike. However, as the Golden Globes report, when talkie films become the norm, Navarro's career begins to ebb. Though his English is good, he still had a Mexican accent, which became an obstacle to his career's longevity. He only can really get roles that have a hero with an accent, and that's about it. And around the same time, in the 1930s, Ramon is accused of promoting communism in California after a special screening of the film Que Viva Mexico, a film by a Russian director. And nothing substantial comes from this accusation, but absolutely hurts his image with the public and his popularity sharply declines. And because of these multiple factors, in 1935, when his contract expires, MGM decides not to renew it. And so a lot of people say it's the communism thing. A lot of people say it's because he kind of had this like open secret. He was never really out. He was always in the closet kind of till the day he dies. So it could have been that they knew about his sexuality. It could have been the Russian communism thing. Like there are a lot of things that are kind of a reason for why MGM wouldn't renew this contract because he was the leading man. Like he was bringing in the numbers. He was bringing in the money, but they still kind of were like, not worth it to us we'll get someone else not so much right right okay and so very quickly his acting career becomes wildly less stable than it was with the studio he takes a role in a mexican religious drama with republic pictures another studio and a french comedy but by 1940 ramon begins to take smaller supporting roles in american movies acting a bit more sporadically like here and there In the mid-1950s, Ramon auditions for a few TV gigs, making a few appearances in, like, character roles and sustaining his lifestyle from these roles. He's considered for a few recurring TV positions, but nothing ever really materializes. By the time the 1960s rolled around, Ramon tries his hand at stage acting and is considered for a Broadway production, but for whatever reason, the whole thing is scrapped. And because Ramon was making a substantial amount of money at the peak of his career, he was able to invest a lot of it into a home in the Hollywood Hills designed by Lloyd Wright, who is the son of Frank Lloyd Wright, a renowned architect. And as Ramon was kind of fading out of the public eye and his impact was becoming less existent, Ramon's drinking problem steadily increased. And this is something that 
he's struggled with he he struggled with alcoholism for most of his life because of his religious background conflicting internally with his queer sexuality which again he kept a secret so he was constantly just having these battles inside he was always fighting you know what he grew up with and what he knew and who he was and, and what he felt his relationship with herbert howe fizzles out during this period and so ramon begins hiring male sex workers to come to his house where they drink fool around enjoy themselves all of the services are coordinated through an agency and they all seem safe and professional and ramon trusts the men that come to his home and october 30th 1968 this was kind of another similarity so his attack was october 30th into october 31st which is halloween so it's just like these right weird yeah so it, it was yes it was a march 13th like friday the 13th Yes, yes. And then, which also is close to the Ides of March, too. But yeah, like lots of weird coincidences. Like spooky. And so on October 30th, 1968, Ramon receives a call from two men who received his number from um, a sex worker who had previously been hired by Ramon, and they offer their services. And so Ramon invites them to his home, not realizing that the two men are brothers, age 22 and 17, who believe that Ramon has a large sum of money hidden somewhere in the house. And so their intentions are to go steal the money. To rob him, right. To rob him, right. And not much is known about what actually happens once the brothers are inside of the house, but a few hours later, Ramon Navarro would be found dead in the Hollywood Hills home at the age of 69. And it was later discovered that the brothers had tortured Ramon to get the location of this non-existent hidden money, but left with only $20 that they took from a bathroom pocket. Ramon's final cause of death was asphyxiation from choking on his own blood after being beaten so badly. Oh my gosh. I'm specifically not saying the name of the men who murdered Ramon. You, if you're listening and you are interested in the case, feel free to go out and research. It's pretty much the most that is written about ramon when you you know google his name kind of every single article is about his murder um but what i want to know is that they are caught and they are sentenced to long prison terms but unfortunately are both released on parole only a few years in both of the brothers are actually later rearrested for unrelated crimes for which they serve longer prison terms than for the murder of Navarro, which is an incredibly heartbreaking like... reality that they murder this man, they're caught, eventually they admit to it, they go to jail, and because I guess they're good, like good in jail, I don't even know, they are released on parole, but then later get caught for other things, kind of like the murderer in. In, in Kitty's case, yeah, it was, like, arrested, had already committed multiple murders, but was arrested for, like, stealing a TV. Right, and these were unrelated crimes, which then these brothers then were taken to court. And because of these unrelated crimes, which were bad, one was, like, a rape and one was something else, so they're still bad. And then they're receiving longer sure. sentences. So I'm glad right. that they both went to jail for a long time, but it's, it's frustrating that they murdered right. a gay man or a queer man and they were able to get away with it right it's like difficult to reconcile that like because justice is typically associated with like what you go to jail for and like similarly in the kitty case like her attacker never went to jail or never was convicted for the other murders it was just hers so like if you associate you know the justice with that specific incident and like going to jail for that reason it is really difficult to like reconcile that you know, this person was, like, brutally murdered and didn't seem to face, like, equal justice for something else. Right. I'm also not saying their names specifically because after the murder of Ramon Navarro, both men were turned kind of into celebrities because of pop culture. So Truman Capote had them on a show where he talked to them and interviewed them. Ugh. women were like writing to them in prison being like when you get out like i, I want they're like rock stars and like groupie you know what i mean like they're they're just getting mm-hmm. all of this attention and unfortunately like in a lot of true crime ramon kind of fades away and so his murder is just kind of like swept under the rug and these two men get all of this attention and all this fame and all this publicity and unfortunately while they're getting all this 
publicity and, you know, living their lives and kind of being successful from it. Ramon is buried in Cavalry Cemetery in East Los Angeles. Um, in the 1960s, he gets a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and you can visit his star at 6350 Hollywood Boulevard. And that is kind of, that's the story of Ramon Navarro, the Latin lover, you know, Hollywood's first closeted, albeit, you know, closeted gay icon and movie star, um, mm-hmm. who was tragically taken from the world um, of acting and, you know, of the world in general just a little bit too soon. Thank you for that story. And I do really like that you focus so much on his career. Like it was really interesting as a person I never really knew that much about. And I do think also it's interesting, you know, if we think about their lives or their legacies after their murders were very different. So like Kitty kind of only became this symbol. Like she was just a regular person and only became this symbol in death and it was like a long lasting symbol it was like kind of a weird martyrdom too like she kind of was meant to represent something which i personally find a little icky because i don't think anyone's murder should be made to represent something like no one should be lost in in an effort to support a different cause um and then in your case it was this person who was already known for something and then unfortunately in death was kind of pushed out of the narrative and i also think it's kind of interesting that both of those things happened around the same time too um and so that kitty kind of became this ideal victim and everybody was focused on you know being scared and victimization and all of these things whereas in this case it was like this celebrity nature of murderers right i just find that very strange yeah so um such a such a juxtaposition in their Mm -hmm. cases it's wild that someone that was so loved someone that was so beloved for many decades on the screen and has like this lasting impact kind of was just forgotten about and and became nothing whereas kitty like you're saying is just like turned into this almost celebrity herself for her death which is so fucked up all around i think a sad week definitely Mm -hmm. i'm i'm happy to have learned about some of that though i honestly don't know that much about like silent movies or just like old film stuff um so that was very interesting to to hear more about and um i do also think that both of these cases and since i didn't know about yours this week i think it's interesting that both of them are on this queer history podcast for you know their identities the important part is it was taken away in in the reporting of those so like their legacy kind of became these really awful things or was erased because of these really awful things but it wasn't until us kind of stumbling upon them or however we found them that we really understood them as part of queer history rather than just like these symbols for their respective right like endings these horrible things happened to them and they weren't even reported on fully and in the true true light because people's judgment and biases and everything else gets in the way right. it's a shame but absolutely i'm glad that we got to speak about two great people um who unfortunately had horrific horrific ends yes i am as well and so make sure you also correct people about kitty genovese Hell yeah. No more slander. No more slander. No more Kitty Genevieve slander. No more. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to episode seven of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about two tragic deaths. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even the Catholic guilt a little more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Bye.